My name's Scott Weatherly, and welcome to 20th Century Geek. Mixed in with the controversy surrounding Suicide Squad and the possible alternate versions that were tested and combined to produce a theatrical release, I found something interesting. The film's novelisation, written by Marv Wolfman, is based off the original shooting script the one written by David Ayer before the alleged studio interference. I have purchased a copy and skimmed through it, and already I have noticed that several things that are either different or absent from the finished film. Having not read it all yet, I won't comment on whether this is a better version of the story, but it is interesting that this version is available. For all the comments and conjecture that is spouted about this film, it looks like some of it could be resolved by just reading this book. If you don't like the film, try the book. Or if you do like the film, try the book to see what could have been. The point is simple. I love movie novelizations, and I want to tell you why. Films, by their very nature, are a visual medium. From the early days of the flicks, they have been a window into another world, enabling us to watch horrific, thrilling and heartwarming moments. Over the years, films have contained increasing spectacle, using the visuals in a lot of different and unique ways. However, within the first years of cinema's growth, this visual medium became linked with something a lot less visual. The film novelisation. These film adaptations have been around for years, and while their commercial purposes has evolved, they have always provided something special for fans. Today, they are usually only released for genre films and massive summer blockbusters. As of the recording of this podcast in the summer of 2016, I have already seen copies of Warcraft, Independence Day Resurgence, the Ghostbusters reboot, and of course Suicide Squad in mainstream bookshops and supermarkets. Considering these titles, you might notice that none of these visual effects blockbusters are particularly literary in nature. In fact, at this point I can vouch that two of the three are better described as big dumb summer fun. Not a ringing endorsement to pick up and work through 300 plus pages of an adaptation. Despite this, I do own the novelisation of two of these films. I will likely also pick up the Blu-rays at some point in the future. So why did I get the books? Well, we'll get to that later in the show, but how about, why are they produced at all? In the last 25 years, most movie studios have come to consider the production of a film's novelisation as nothing more than another part of the publicity machine. A relatively cheap method of promoting a film in shops that would otherwise not be open to them. That, due to short printing order, will quickly pay for itself. In order to maintain the image of the film, the studios usually maintain quite tight controls over the production of the books and ensure that they are as close to the film as possible. This, however, was not always the case. And in some instances, the novelisation provides an insight into the author's interpretation of the material, as well as the production history of the film. There are a number of novelizations that still contain scenes, subplots and even characters that do not make it to the screen. The other key point to remember is that it wasn't until the mid-1980s that films were available in home entertainment format. Before the birth of VHS tapes, the only way to relive a film once it had left the cinema was to read the novelisation. So are novelisations just cheap cash-in promotional material? When researching for this show, I read several articles that argued just that. 
that these items held no artistic or entertainment value. In fact, author Jonathan Coe is quoted as describing them as a bastard misshapen offspring of the cinema and the written word. So a creation without any home. Also during my research, I came across a blog that took this argument further, stating, A film novelisation is a bastard in the truest sense of the word. It's a replication. There are no additions or variations, despite one writer handing off the baton to the other. If the stories in the novelisation and the film differ, it is not because the book presents a different message, but because the screenwriter simply changed the story after the book was sent for publication. I hope to show that while novelisations are not the height of literature, that both these statements are un underrepresentation of these books. In fact, there are examples of books that go well beyond the script and provide fans something extra, both in a behind-the-scenes peek into the from-script-to-screen process, to alt alternate takes of scenes, or the addition of deleted scenes. They are the Earth 2 of the film industry. In particular, I believe these statements sell short the effort and skill that goes into the product and the output. A skilled writer can provide anything from a more in-depth insight into the character's thoughts, a slightly different interpretation of the film that appears on the screen, or both of these, as well as backstories of key and minor characters. I would also go so far as to suggest that these quickly and cheaply made books are a close relation to the pulp novels of the 1920s and 30s. So what about their history? Well, at the start of the 20th century, plays were mostly the entertainment of the richer classes. In order to give these to a wider audience, the play's scripts were released in book form. In 1912, this was taken one step further with what is widely considered the first novelisation, an adaptation of Ladies' Home Journal. Following this, other plays were adapted, but it wasn't until 1933 and the release of King Kong that the novelisation medium gained some success. The 1930s experienced an escalation in sci-fi and horror, with the continued popularity of pulp novels, the birth of mystery men and the first superheroes, as well as the leaps that were made in cinema, including the introduction of the Universal Monsters. Considering this, it's no surprise that the novel chronicling the tragic tale of the giant ape was such a success. Remember, the film itself was a huge hit, but at the time was only viewable when it was in the cinemas. This success translated into the novelisation of a number of other film genres. You see, even then geek culture was having an influence on the movie industry. During my research, I looked for copies of novelisations on eBay and other retail sites. And during this search, I found a copy of the adaptation of The Bride of Frankenstein from 1935, selling for over £500. For several decades, the adaptations were mainly of sci-fi and horror films, a trend that, as I mentioned, is still true today. However, in the 60s and throughout the 70s, the film industry grew and expanded. This, in turn, resulted in an increase in the types of films that received the novelisation treatment. Seriously, everything was fair game. Films that could be considered to have some literary potential, such as 1976's Taxi Driver, to summer blockbusters like 1977's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, to more bizarre choices like the 1972 erotic drama Deep Throat. This trend continued into the 1980s, 
but towards the end of the decade, the output began to reduce once again to the sci-fi and horror core. The fact that for a time so many films were translated into books added to the opinion that they were throwaway and of no literary value. I can't deny that of the novelisations I have read from the heyday of the 60s, 70s and 80s, a lot of them were not very good. However, there were several that stood out, and in one or two cases actually added something to the film experience. I will come back to these later, but right now let's consider the actual process of creating a novelisation, and why creating a good one is so difficult and requires real skill. The novelisation process starts at around the same time as the film production. A writer is chosen and given a copy of the script as it stands at that point. They will then have a very short period, in some cases as short as two or three weeks, in which to turn a 90 to 100 page script into a 300 plus page novel. This is no small feat. Remember, the script as a document is designed to produce a visual product. It will contain dialogue and depending on the skill of the screenwriter, stage direction. However, in many cases, the script will contain action, set pieces, bites, or in more modern cases, scenes that will be mostly CG rendered in post-production. How can they know what will change between then and when the film is completed? Sometimes the writer may have copies of pre-production concept art and storyboards, but it is impossible for them to know what will actually appear on the screen. So they have an outline and they are restricted on what they can add and create in the novel. In addition to this, the writer will receive notes during production to advise of changes that have been made, scenes that have been cut or dialogue that has been changed, meaning they will have to amend as they go or go back and edit what they have already written. So surely they can't deviate too much from the final, as yet unseen product, can they? It is this fine line that the writer has to tread and use their imagination instead of being able to re reference the final film. One of the most prolific authors of novelisations is Alan Dean Foster. He has contributed to a ton of successful franchises such as Star Wars, Star Trek, Aliens, Terminator and Transformers, as well as some cult films, Krull, The Last Starfighter, The Thing and Clash of the Titans. So if anyone can comment on the pressures of writing a novelisation, it's Foster. When writing Alien 3, Foster felt that there was something missing from the characterisations of the prisoners. Having seen the film, he isn't wrong. Being the writer he is, and having been considered a major success novelising the previous two films, Foster took the opportunity to provide each of them with backstories. As he puts it, he was trying to make them into real characters instead of just alien chow. Following the submission of the draft, he received a response from one of the film's producers, Walter Hill. Hill was not happy, and told Foster, You can't do this. You have to follow the script exactly. The way it was written. We think it will make a better book. A non-writer telling the writer what will be a better book does not result in a good book. Despite the differences in opinion between the writer and producer, I am a fan of both film and novel. While the film has some fantastic visuals, the novel has more depth and I think it's a better, clearer story. On the other side of the line is Foster's experience of writing Luana, an Italian film released in 1968 about a girl Tarzan. That is literally the tagline. It does exactly what it says on the tin. 
The novelisation was commissioned a few years later in 1974. Foster was approached to produce a novelisation. Being eager to try new things, he accepted and asked for a copy of the script from which to work. He was swiftly told that there are no copies of the script, but he would be able to watch the film. As Foster explained, They screened it for me, and it was in Italian, with no subtitles. And that wasn't very helpful, because I spoke no Italian. Luckily, Foster had other sources from which he could draw inspiration. The artist Frank Frazetta had created the promotional posters for the film, which despite depicting a female Tarzan character, had no relation to the film Foster had seen. Finding these more interesting, Foster created and novelised a story based on the posters rather than the film. It bore so little relation to the film that after the book was released, a Disney representative made contact asking if the film rights were available. The latter of the two examples is an extreme case and an exception to the rule experienced in the first. However extreme it may be, it does highlight that in some cases, the novelisation can provide so much more than just a retread of what appeared on the big screen. In both these cases, regardless of how close the adaptation may be, the novel is created from original material intended to be a film. One of the big complaints about Hollywood today is the lack of originality. So many films are based on other material. Comics, computer games, but more specifically, novels. In these cases, how successful can a novelisation be that is created for the film based on a book? The Arnold Schwarzenegger sci-fi action from 1990, Total Recall, is based on a story by Philip K. Dick. We can remember it for you wholesale. Directed by Paul Verhoeven, the film expands on the original story with some excellent satire and set pieces. Being a Schwarzenegger sci-fi action film, there was no doubt that it would be novelised. The adaptation was written by Piers Anthony, and the majority of the book runs close to the film, but lacks Verhoeven's deft touch for ambiguity and satire. In fact, while the film leaves a lot for the viewer to interpret, the book provides clear answers. I won't spoil it here, but if you are tempted to seek out the novelisation, I strongly suggest you read Philip K. Dick's original story, and then watch the film before you read the adaptation. So at the end, we have three products, all of which have the same core story. In this case, the novelisation is least successful, but when producing a product that has already been written by one of the greatest sci-fi writers, and then by a unique directing talent, it is not surprising. The point being, in some cases, a novelisation is not the right option. If we considered an earlier Philip K. Dick adaptation, we also come across another problem. Blade Runner was released in 1982, based on the novel Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Following the release of the film, Dick was offered a substantial amount of money to write the novelisation, but refused, stating, I was told the cheapo novelisation would have to appeal to the 12-year-old audience. It would have probably been disastrous for me artistically. He insisted on reissuing the original novel with a tie-in cover instead, which it was. The script was eventually adapted into a comic by Archie Goodwin for Marvel. If you have seen the film and or read the book, you will know that they both leave a number of questions open-ended. This has led to constant debates about what is meant by certain scenes and shots. This is fuelled further by the different versions of the film that have been released since its original theatrical release in 1982. 
In an attempt to resolve some of these questions and provide more information on the Blade Runner world, K.W. Jetta was commissioned to write three sequels. The question is, are these sequels to the film or the original novel? Well, the answer is both. Jetta attempted to resolve the differences between the two and provide a more consistent narrative. Having read the books, I would say that they are okay, but not essential. The point we made is that while audiences might actually like a little ambiguity, movie studios do not, and will produce something that provides the answers. The only hope is that these answers are interesting and are provided in an imaginative and well-written way. So far, the books mentioned have not been the best examples of novelisations. In fact, considering these, it would be fair to ask why I like them at all. Well, having gotten the bad examples out of the way, let's move on to why I think film novelisations can provide something extra for the film and book fans alike. My first experience of a novelisation was in 1994, when I came across a copy of Alan Dean Foster's adaptation of the 1986 James Cameron film, Aliens. I had seen the film recently, and was intrigued by this paperback, with Ripley and Newt on the cover. I read through the relatively short book in a matter of days. I really enjoyed the book and would recommend it. In fact, it is one of the few adaptations that has had multiple printings and has actually been reprinted recently to celebrate the film's 30th anniversary. Yet, when I finished the book, I had a bunch of questions. There were several scenes in the book that I was sure I had not seen. It wasn't until I finally watched the special edition sometime later that I found out that the scenes from the book had been cut from the theatrical version of the film. I was fascinated by this notion and sought out other film adaptations to see what else had been removed. This led me on to others. First I completed the Alien series and then, sticking with the same genre, I found the novelisations of Predator, then Ghostbusters, and then I found the omnibus of the Nightmare on Elm Street films. The book I found contained the first five films. Again, it's not high literature, but the adaptations are short, punchy and good fun. While reading this book, I discovered that there were alternate books for some of the films written by a different author. In fact, the alternate version of A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 is based on the script written by Wes Craven before it was changed by an additional scriptwriter. This alternate version contains a lot of the story points that appear in the film, but tell a rather different overall story. Without the novelisation process, this alternate version would likely have never seen the light of day. They are both reasonable, but if you can track down the alternate version written by Wes Craven, I would recommend it. Although these books are intended by the studio to be a promotional tool, creating an alternate is not an isolated incident. Following the release of The Terminator in 1984, Sean Houston was commissioned to write the novelisation. It follows the script very closely, describing the scenes in some detail, which is a very basic adaptation. However, to accompany the release of Terminator 2 in 1991, an alternate version was written by Randall Frakes and Bill Wisher. This version contains some additional dialogue and pads a couple of the scenes. If you decide to track one of these down, I recommend the Frakes version. It is a superior book with a better understanding of the film, which is not surprising when you realise that Bill Wisher was the co-writer with James Cameron on Terminator 2. In both cases, the studios have delivered something extra. In the case of The Terminator, an improved, expanded adaptation. For A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, an alternate version that was never going to be released in any other format. It can be argued that in both cases, these are not for the casual viewer. These were created 
for the fans. These examples are books that are created as alternates that have closer versions also available. However, there are numerous examples of the official novelizations providing an alternate or expanded version of the theatrical film. I have already mentioned Aliens and the fact that the novelization contains scenes that were scripted and filmed but not released until the special edition 10 years after its original release. Another great example of this is the novelization of the 1989 Tim Burton Batman film. The film is a darker yet still campy take on the Cape Crusader. The novel follows a similar tone and contains everything from the film. However, it adds a great scene that was never filmed. Following the confrontation between Bruce Wayne and the Joker at Vicky Vale's apartment, Bruce sneaks out, changes into his Batsuit and follows the Joker. This additional scene includes a horseback chase, a fight in the middle of a parade and the Joker escaping on a rocket. It's crazy and would have been incredibly expensive as well as being campier than anything that actually made it into the final cut. In fact, it was the inclusion of this scene in the original script that led to Sean Young breaking her leg when horse riding, prepping for her audition as Vicky Vale. While Aliens and Batman provide an insight into what the screenwriters added in early versions, they are not the pinnacle of adaptations. These still adhere to the rules for which these books are criticised. The best books take the basic material and add a depth and twist to it, providing a different experience altogether. Although I will concede that this isn't always a success. So we can end on a high note, let's start with a low. The first, and one of the most unusual, is the adaptation of the family-friendly classic E.T. In the film, E.T. is the wonderfully cute little alien that helps bring a struggling family back together. Despite some earthly influences, during the film he remains a very definite alien. In the book, written by William Cotswinkle though, the character is a little different. Not only does he have more interest in earthly influences, we learn that he's also a little creepy. Here's a quote from the book. He crept down the hall to Mary's room and peeked in. The willow creature was asleep, and he watched for a long time. She was a goddess, the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. Her radiant hair spread out upon the pillow was the moonlight itself. Her features, so understated in their loveliness, were all that was perfection in nature. Her closed eyes like the sleeping butterflies upon the night-blooming narcissus. Her lips the petals of the columbine. Mary, said his old heart. Then upon paddle feet, he tiptoed over to her bed and gazed more closely. She was the loveliest creature in the universe. And what had he given her? Nothing. He'd stolen her fuzzbuster. He gazed on as she turned in her sleep, dreaming whatever dream she had, none of which, he knew, contained a pot-bellied old botanist from outer space. Gently he placed an M&M on her pillow and crept on back down the hall. E.T., the cute alien that taught us all to be good, was in fact an intergalactic stalker that enjoyed watching people sleep. I get this is supposed to be endearing, but it feels one step away from hair smelling and collecting old fingernails. In interviews, Cotswinkle stated that he wanted to give some depth to the characters that were glossed over in the film, which is a great aspiration. Unfortunately, I think the added characterisation to the title character goes in the wrong direction. 
although I am sure these descriptions would have been a great ego boost to the actress Dee Wallace who played Mary. Now, let's take a look at some of my favourites. Firstly, 1984's Gremlins, written by George Gipp. The film was my introduction to horror, giving me thrills and nightmares in equal measure. In the film, the Mogwai and Gremlins aren't given an origin. It is suggested that they have been around for some time, maybe originating in the Orient, but for the film, it doesn't matter. The havoc they wreak on Kingston Falls is what the film is all about. Yet in the book, an origin is given, and in my opinion, it sort of works. The origin given not only provides a backstory for the little freaks, the way it is presented indicates that Gizmo is more intelligent and sophisticated than is suggested in the film. The first chapter opens from Gizmo's point of view as he thinks about his past and how his kind were created on a distant planet as a genetic experiment and then sent to as many inhabited planets as possible to spread peace and well-being. All very zen so far. The floor in the planet of the creatures are broken, genetically. As we know, if you feed them after midnight, they change and become more aggressive. Or at least the majority do. According to Gaip's canon, one in 1000 is free of this genetic defect. And while they would change, they would not gain the aggression. And Gizmo? He just happens to be that rare one in 1000. So, gremlins are aliens. Which I never considered when I saw the film, but I like as an option. Another thing worth noting is that Gaip gives Gizmo and some of the gremlins dialogue. Granted, only between each other, but this little touch provides some fun exchanges and fleshes out the relationship between Gizmo, who has clearly lived a long time, and the newly created gremlins. During one of the short conversations, it is suggested that his genetic memory and Stripe, the leader gremlin, is aware of something that can harm him and kill him, but wants to extract the full information from Gizmo. There are several other deviations from the story in the book that add more depth and detail, including what happens to Corey Feldman's character, information on the last serious Gremlins outbreak, and that Gremlins are genetically unable to kill each other. I really enjoy the film. It is always part of the Christmas rotation every year, but Guype has taken the opportunity to use the different medium to provide an alternate experience. Where the additional details in the E.T. adaptation made E.T. a different character, Gaip's use of backstory and thoughts expand on the characters as we see them on the screen. They are no less scary or cute, but we do have a better understanding of whom and what they are and what motivates them. In addition to adding backstory, some of the authors use the medium to present the story in such a way that makes the novel more than an adaptation. Two great examples are 1985's Young Sherlock Holmes by Alan Arnold, and 1994's The Shadow, by James Lucano. Story-wise, the young Sherlock Holmes adaptation is pretty standard, and follows the beats and plot of the film very closely. The fun comes in the way that the story is presented. Arnold writes the book as homage to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, told from the perspective of the young Watson. He takes care to use language and cadence that would be period-appropriate. This book could well be an early journal from the young Watson, and can be read in line with the rest of Conan Doyle's work. 25 years before an official Young Sherlock Holmes series was published, Alan Arnold created a book that is a delightful entry point to the character and provides an origin that fits the tone of Conan Doyle's series. 
1994's The Shadow film is pure pulp fun, but is decisive with Shadow fans. It holds true to some aspects of the mythology, but plays fast and loose with others. James Lucano treats the novelisation as a pulp novel, and it whips along at a great pace. He also uses it as an opportunity to reconcile the film's story with the pulp mythology. The key aspect being, in the film the shadow is portrayed as being Lamont Cranston, New York socialite. In the adaptation, Lucano addresses this, explaining that Alec Baldwin is actually playing Ken Allard, the true identity of the shadow, but during this adventure he is utilising the Lamont Cranston persona. Like Arnold, with young Sherlock Holmes, Lucano uses a tone and style that fits this book in with many shadow pulp novels. Both these adaptations have been taken as an opportunity to bridge the gap between what appears on the screen and the source material. Taken as standalone novels, read without seeing the films, both work well, but as companions to the films, they expand and enrich the story and the experience. To sum it up, I cannot deny that film adaptation novels are created by the studios with one quick money-making and marketing purpose. However, I hope I have highlighted that in the hands of skilled writers, sometimes supported by circumstance, these novels can become so much more. Providing a hint into the production process, the film that could have been, or an expansion of the universe, whether that be a glimpse into the mind of the characters or providing a bridge between the film and other source material. In my opinion, these books are a repeated missed opportunity. Studio concerns and controls today ensure that they are mere duplicates of the screen experience. However, if studios were to take a little risk and hand the material over to skilled writers and give them some freedom, these could become an altogether different experience. They need to accept that the written word is a different format and should be treated as such to tell the same story in a different way. The future is in taking a chance and providing that variability and trusting in skilled creators. I would love the Marvel Universe films to be adapted to a series of pulp-style adventure books by writers with experience of creating similar novels as well as the comic book source. How about some of the best future horror films translate into truly dark and scary novels? These could be excellent. Anyway, please let me know what you think of film novelizations. Do you enjoy them or hate them? Are there any that you would recommend or believe add to the film? Do they work better for computer game adaptations, such as the Assassin's Creed or Hitman series? Let me know what you think through Twitter, at 20thCenturyGeek, or email me at 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com, or contact me through the website 20thCenturyGeek.com. Also, please use these channels to provide any or all feedback on the show, or suggest topics for future episodes. Thanks for taking the time to listen. I'm Scott Weatherly, and this has been 20th Century Geek.